Are you ready for another round? Round Rant, and today I am delighted to be joined by Zach Bitter, who is an American ultramarathon runner. He has held the records for the 100-mile run and the 12-hour run record as well, and I believe he is still currently the American with the world record when it comes to running the quickest 100-mile run. So before I start sweating profusely at the idea of how one can accomplish that. I just want to ask you, Zach, how are you keeping today and how's, how's life? Uh, doing well. Yeah, actually, um, you know, we're in the, the heat of summer here in Austin, Texas, so we're dealing with that. But other than that, it's been good. I'm coming off a bit of an injury, but training's been kind of full speed ahead, more or less the last week or so. So it's been kind of exciting to build back up. Good stuff, good stuff. And I've, I've, I've listened to quite a lot of your interviews over the last several years and you've spoken about when you were in like middle school high school that running was always not like it was of interest to you and it's something that you did quite regularly and you slowly established that you were quite good at it but was there say when you were in middle school or high school or even approaching college like was there another route another profession that you were kind of eyeing up or was it always the case that you were thinking okay I'm going to be a long distance runner yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I was super indecisive about what I wanted to do through high school for the most part. And I sort of had a few ideas in my head and began college more. I, I had an, I had some ideas, but I was more in hindsight, I was very much still exploring what it was I wanted to do. But by about my sophomore year, midway through, I was pretty convinced I wanted to teach in some capacity. And then it was just deciding like what disciplines would make the most sense and like what age groups and things like that. So I was kind of leaning more towards the like middle school, high school age range or where they certify you here in the U S I think it's like 10 through 20 or something like that. Um, I ended up doing that with uh, dual certifications. So uh, regular ed and special ed with my regular ed disciplines being uh, history and broadfield social studies. So like all the, like social studies disciplines, like geography, psychology, um, history, world history, uh, a lot of that sort of stuff. And then special ed was just pretty broad in terms of what you would end up encountering in that world. But that was kind of what I thought I would do for presumably the rest of my life or until retirement. And it was never really an anticipation of mine that professional running or anything even really within the market of running either appealed to me or was an option at like the professional level. So it sort of happened organically, more or less. Okay. And when you're, say, young and it's the same, I'd say, if you're an aspiring NFL player or whatever it may be, you need to show promise. And you've alluded to the fact that you did show promise when it was long-distance type runs. But at that early stage, training your own expectation of how you'd run and maybe even, I don't know, maybe your awareness to the sport and like the training around us, like what do you think separated you at an early age to the rest of the people that maybe did run in whether it was short or long 
arranging runs? Like, do you think it was a, a different mentality to people? Was it just simply what I always say to <clears throat> my fitter friends? You just had the genetics that you could just run and not get not get any sores, or you could just keep the engine going. Like, what was the difference at that early stage for you? Yeah, I mean, at an early stage, I would say. I mean, I was good enough to be very interested in it and like make the state meets and things like that and make varsity and college for track and cross country and that sort of thing. But I wasn't really standing on any podiums that would suggest like, oh, yeah, you should be targeting the 5K and the Olympics. I was quite far from that. So that actually, I think, put me in a unique position where I sort of developed within the sport of running at a very manageable rate where I was never thinking of running at like what you could maybe call like a global picture um, or even a national picture for that matter. So I was able to kind of like learn, you know, how do I stack up against local competition? How do I stack up against like state competition and things like that and really kind of keep myself in check more or less. So I didn't get maybe overly invested in it. And I think in hindsight, when you just look at just, I mean, some people handle this quite well, obviously, that's why we have the, you know, the Olympic medalists eventually, but a lot of people don't, we don't really hear about them where, you know, you get these big expectations placed on them at an early age. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, they're, they're like internationally ranked as a high school student at their aged group or something like that. And now all of a sudden the expectation for them is quite large and that can cloud out other things in their life, I think. So I never had that experience. What happened to me actually was I didn't really even appreciate ultra running at all. And I knew of it, but I didn't really think of it as certainly not a profession or something that you would invest a career into. So when I first started really trying to understand the sport in college, I just identified that the longer is my favorite run of the workouts that we would do. So after college, I sort of just invested most of my running time into the long run. And, you know, with that just comes a higher mileage training approach. And with that, it kind of just maybe like inadvertently led me down the path towards ultra marathon where I eventually jumped in a race and realized that I was actually quite a bit better at that as I was, at least amongst the competition than I was like when I was running shorter things like 5Ks and 10Ks and even marathons. So that was like a new experience for me and one that I wanted to explore. So I sort of explored that for a few years, still not with the anticipation that it was going to be something you could have a professional career. And there was very few people doing it professionally. And usually it was more at that time, it was more because they had some other business type of thing kind of tied to the running itself or storytelling tied to it that allowed them to make a profession out of it versus them just racing or getting paid in the United States. And over in Europe, I think this has already occurred to some degree, but um, yeah, there just wasn't a lot of that. So I just timing and interest and introduction to the aspects of it just really lined up perfectly for me where I started to get interested in the longer stuff or recognizing I was interested in that around the time ultra marathons were starting to pop up more frequently. I happened to be maybe a little bit better as the distance got longer, just from if you want to look at maybe a, a skill set that I was more or less just gifted, it may be something like that, where uh, for whatever reason, like I'm better at just running slow, but staying consistent for a long period of time versus just having that massive engine that we're going to see in know, Olympic caliber distance runners. And, and then just like the opportunity as a sport grew too to grow with it. So then as it became more of a opportunity for like the top runners in the sport to kind of carve out a profession, go that route too. So, uh, you know, it was, it's actually kind of funny. I was the first inkling I got that I could maybe step away from teaching or that I should even consider stepping away teaching and focusing on running was in the mid 2000, 
2010s, like I can remember 2015 or so, I had actually started doing some one-on-one coaching alongside just basically like, I, I love coaching. I coached track and cross country at the middle school level and the high school level periodically throughout my teaching career. So I knew I loved that, but I didn't really know much about like the one-on-one coaching side of things until friends and people I knew from the ultra running circuit started reaching out and asking me if I would coach them. So after just saying yes to enough people, I ended up having like somewhere around 15 people that I was coaching during the school year to the point where I was like, well, if I lean into this at all, I could be in a position where now I have to decide which one to do. And I was also starting to get athlete sponsorships at the time as well as I started to start gaining some results that were more more, no, more notable than maybe some of the earlier ones I had done. And I was on this trajectory where I thought, well, I'm going to teach for one more year and then maybe I'll reassess. So I was more or less just punting it down the road. <laughs> and then I had a co-teacher, though, who was way more free-spirited than I was at the time. And he was just like, what are you doing, man? <laughs> what are you doing? You're not teaching next year. Go run. So like at, at that point, he kind of gave me the push that I needed to kind of like make the plunge more or less. And uh, that next or that end of that school year, I, I met with the principal and, and explained to her kind of my situation. And she was all supportive of it and even said, hey, if you she didn't say it this way, but this is how I comprehend it. She's like, if you belly flop, then you can come back. So <laughs> so I uh, I I left after that year, moved up to California. I was teaching in Wisconsin and I'd lived in Wisconsin for 20 years. So that was kind of home for me at the time. And uh, I kind of started my career out West. And yeah, from there, it's just every, I always told myself like, you know, let's just take it one year at a time, maybe at the most three years at a time in those early days, just to kind of see, is this still worth it? Is this still something exciting to me? Is this still something motivating to me? Is this something I can feasibly keep doing uh, from a career standpoint? And every year it's just gotten to be a little bit uh, not linear. I wouldn't say linearly, but over the course of uh, when I decided to do that to today, it's been you know a pretty good trajectory in terms of how I've been able to build things within my training and racing, as well as the businesses and things I've done around it. Happy days. And yeah. with the move from Wisconsin to California, I actually I went to a Green Bay Packers game earlier this year, and oh yeah, was, that's an experience. With, <laughs> the Wisconsin chill is like Ireland is tough at the the best of times when it comes to the weather, but that was, that was different gravy altogether. And the climates of Wisconsin to Cali, I'm sure is a bit of a a bit of a change. But when you make that, that big step away from say the teaching and you, you go full metal jacket towards the ultra marathon type lifestyle, if you want to call it that Mm -hmm. at the very start, like, did you have guidance? Were you pretty much like just going with your own, sort of training well like was there huge failures at the start or was it a case that you were nearly happy-go-lucky circumstance where every race everything you did was more of like a positive stepping stone or was there at the start like a a bit of resistance or a bit of failure initially yeah it's a really good question I you know I think the way I tend to you know, I've moved enough throughout my running career that I sort of do see some trend lines there in terms of transitions where I find that first year, I don't always feel quite like I'm clicking the way I am when I'm kind of really have everything efficient. So between like the coaching, podcasting, training and racing, you start to really get efficient within those different like areas to the point where then I think you feel like you can invest more physical and mental energy into each of them in a very meaningful way. And sometimes I think it does take around though that amount of time to really feel like things are clicking along well. Um, 
you know, I didn't have necessarily a too rough of a start, I don't think, with that first move to California, though, because the nice thing about it for me at that point in my life was I, since I was teaching, I had pretty good flexibility in the summers. I have 12 weeks that I could do basically whatever I wanted. There was really no expectations for me outside of any professional development that I would maybe be doing on the side. But I, I oftentimes would drive out to California or do some traveling and essentially live like a professional athlete for three months out of the year, uh, which was one thing taught me one thing, which is like, I shouldn't have just that in my life. I need other things in order to feel like things are like really moving in a direction I want them to be and stay positive in a way that I'm actually going to even get good race results. So I think that was a good, good thing to have in my back pocket, but it was also really helped that transition. So when I stopped teaching that year, I wasn't transitioning into something completely new because I had about a three month buffer to sort of live the way I would have anyways, or just adjust to, uh, the lifestyle I normally would have, but in a different state. So then when the fall racing started popping up in, it would have been end of 2015, I actually ran some pretty good races. Uh, in fact, I broke the American record for a hundred miles at the end of that year, I believe. So that one went pretty smooth. Um, yeah. And then I think moving from, moving from California to Phoenix, the first year there, I think I had some, I had some, I had some good races, but I didn't feel like I really nailed anything. But then 2019 had like the best racing career of my life. So like that was like kind of like around that trend line and stuff like that. And my wife and I actually just moved to Austin a year and a half ago. So I'm starting to kind of get that feeling now where like everything is kind of in place. I know where everything's at. The routine that you can kind of put on cruise control is all in place. And you can sort of, I think, just think at a little bit of a higher level out of this on the stuff that you would normally have to just blow past when you're still trying to get everything nice and organized and things like that. So you know, it's a, it's interesting. Cause I know like professional athletes, oftentimes in the big sports, they're moving all the time. If they get traded or if they, you know, their seasons in general are just scattered all over the place. And, you know, they might have to move to different countries. It just boggles my mind how efficiently some of these, these men and women do transition from like one area to another in, in some cases seeming seamlessly. So, uh, that's one of the more interesting things I think about living the life as like a professional athlete is you have all these other things that are happening and they do directly impact the way you perform in some capacity. And a lot of times just recognizing things ahead of time, I think sets you up to be able to navigate that better. So thankfully for me, I still hopefully have some tread on the tires from a racing standpoint and a lot of, a lot of knowledge about navigating the sport at this point. So I, I'm really looking forward to the next few years of, of training and racing. Yeah. Uh, it is a important point point that you raise about the, ability to be consistent about like your training and as you said i think it was like nearly like autopilot where your routine is so set in stone that you don't really have Mm -hmm. to worry about it and that's it's somewhat a luxury but it's something you obviously have to work for and at like the start of your answer there you were talking about like the first chance of breaking the 100 mile records and your big big piece is like breaking that record as well i know it's obviously been it's been topped but even hearing your voice there might suggest that you want to try top it again but when you plan or anticipate an idea as big as vast as breaking a hundred mile record like where does that does that come from absolutely like purely yourself does it come from a friend in a bar saying you know it'd be pretty cool if you could break the record yeah like how how does an idea as vast and as challenging as that, like how does that originate inside someone's brain or is it outside forces find its way inside your brain? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I think, again, that almost reflects back to what I was kind of talking about in the beginning, where I've sort of been presented with these different goals or these different sort of hurdles to get over, I think at just like the right time for me. So I was able to digest them in a way that wasn't like overwhelming. So when I broke the American record for 100 miles and the world record for 12 hours in 2013, it was the first time I ran an ultra marathon on a track. And it was actually the first time I ran like a really runnable 100. It was actually my second 100 mile finish. So I really hadn't done a lot of 100 miling in general there. So I was sort of naive to the degree that I went into that race targeting the American record because I had run a pretty fast 50 miler earlier that year. And I was just doing some math in my head thinking, well, if I slow down roughly 30 minutes for the first 50 miles, that should feel pretty chill. And then, you know, who knows what I do for the next 50. So in my mind, it made sense to go after the American record there. So once I did that and I took 12 minutes off of it. So then I was looking at being roughly 19 minutes off the world record. And I was thinking to myself, it's just like, well, it just makes sense if I've only done a couple of these races to date, I'm only 19 minutes away. You would, I just, just thinking back to just the trajectory that I had through like the 5k, the 10k and other distances in high school and college, I thought to myself, well, if I even have a relatively modest trajectory compared to that, I should be able to get down, you know, around that time. So that just kind of that the, the target of the world record sort of just got to me in terms of it was the next logical step based on what I had done. And, you know, if you had asked me at that time when I was going to do it, I would have told you like early the following year, <laughs> but as these things typically happen, I think it's like you end up waiting a little bit longer than you anticipate. So I, I, I made a few attempts over those years, but none of them quite lined up the way I needed them to until 2019 when I uh, took about 10 minutes off of the world record at the time uh, at the Pettit Center and and that's where I really kind of hit that hit that stride. But, you know, for me, the other thing, too, is like all training is such a broad sport, too. It's like people who learn about it from something I say, they may think like, you know, it's just like an extension of track and field, which it very much can be when you look at some of the stuff I've done. But it's also, you know, 100 milers in the mountains, six day events, 50 Ks, like all sorts of stuff. you name the environment, they have a race in it. You name the distance, they have a race in it. So you have these opportunities as well, I think, to give yourself some flexibility amongst your career to both try different things or give yourself a break from the primary goal. So I would definitely say at this point, it would be hard to argue that I'm not focused on my primary goal being running fast, runnable hundred milers, but I do like getting out onto some more like kind of historic trail <laughs> mountain type courses like the San Diego hundred or the Western States 100 and events like that too. So what I find is usually I've got about, maybe two or three seasons worth of like real like high level like focus and desire to really build up and peak for these contrived 400 meter loop type courses <laughs> before I need to just yeah. take like a few months and train for something completely different and it hit, re hit the reset button in, in your head and then go back and uh, you know take another swing at some of that stuff so I do have a little bit of flexibility I think within the sport to be able to do that where you see these professional marathoners who are like getting into their like late thirties, early forties, and just still on that same grind as they were in their late twenties or maybe even earlier. And it's just, that's, that's super impressive to me that they're able to essentially do the same routine over and over again with very little change. Cause at that point, you know, there's just tiny shifts that they're going to be making in any of their, their approach that they have to be very, very, comfortable, I think, with probably recognizing when they're motivated and not motivated and adjusting with it. So uh, they can't necessarily go to the mountains like I can. <laughs> yeah, true. 
And when you talked about maybe certain adjustments you made, or you were talking about the 50 miler compared to the 100 and like skimming half an hour off, staying comfortable, that's all like tactical and maybe physical body management. Like before you attempt, or even when you broke the world records, like do you have, and like I'm just going to give a bit of a sob story here, but it's no way me painting the same picture, put myself on the same page as you. But during COVID, I walked about 100, 100 kilometers in 24 hours was my goal. Nice. And I, I did it with like five seconds to spare. It, it almost killed me. But I remember before that I read, like there's only so much David Goggins podcast you can listen to before you <laughs> yeah are kind of like, is this actually going to make me able to do it? But mentally, I, I thought about like training myself for the pain and the doubt that would come in 24 hours of, you know, gradual increased pain and struggle. So I had like different layers of like buzzwords. And like when I, I got to my closest ebb of quitting, I had like the ultimate darkest reason for me to keep going like stored away there so like i tiptoed mm-hmm. around it at certain stages but like at a breaking point about 75 kilometers in i was like i'm done i'm gonna quit and then i thought about that and then that just kind of kicked me on and i'm not necessarily saying do you have any like negative thoughts or go-tos but before you try and beat a world record or run a race that is going to be severely challenging do you do any sort of like mental conditioning? Because I know you've talked about like being quite process driven and staying in the moment, but like, is there any conditioning like prior to the event that you nearly have to prepare yourself for mentally? Yeah, no, I think you're, you're heading down the right path. And I think the way I describe these hundred mile races is you're going to be presented with mental hurdles. There's no doubt about it. Some of them pop up in fairly routine spots. Sometimes they come up a little bit uniquely based on the events, but they're going to be there. So how you navigate those tend to be tell the story at the end of the day. Like the difference between a good day and a great day is oftentimes how efficiently you move past any of the mental hurdles or in my case at times, how many of them can you go through versus other times where like in 2015, I was ahead of world record pace through 80 miles, but I couldn't quite hang on long enough to keep it. So I saw the world record slip away that year. Whereas in 2019, I had, I got to similar spots, but for whatever reason that year, I was able to get past those. So, you know, it's certainly a combination of physical and mental, uh, managements with that. But I do think the mental side becomes especially powerful in races that are so long, because when we're, if you're honest with yourself, the intensity is really low, regardless of how fast you're going based on what you could be doing. So at that point, it does become something about like, you know, how bad do you really want to just go through this? and kind of get to that goal. So having those things available to you that you described, like that motivator that you don't want to use too early because you know, it's powerful, you know, it's maybe the one thing that's going to get you through the worst of the situation. You know, for me, I think a lot of it is just like both knowing those things are coming up and that you can get through them. So one thing that sticks in my head now is whenever I do have a race like I did in 2019 and you sort of have a bit of a paradigm shift where it's, it's the situation where you do one step further than you have in the past. That's great. That's growth. That's development, but it's also an acknowledgement that perhaps you left something on the table in the past. So when I think about going past the level I was able to do in 2015 and 2019, 
you know, you can, you definitely want to give yourself some, some credit for solving that riddle, but you also want to look at it very practically in the sense that there's going to be a race in my future where I'm presented with that same situation at, but this time at, at a heightened level. And I have to ask myself, like, like, am I going to look back at this event where I folded now and look at it in the same lens as I did in 2019 to 2015, where it was like, you know, you, you had the opportunity right in front of you, but you missed it. Or you didn't you didn't take it you didn't manage it properly in order to get what you were actually looking for out of it at, at its highest the way you did that next time. So it kind of does I think having that like that mindset there that like you you don't know what you know until you did it. And if you did, you would have done better in the past, puts you in a position where like when you do start getting those doubt, you can kind of just have that in your back pocket thinking is this really a situation in which I need to preserve and slow down and give up on my a goal? Or is this a point where I just need to be strong? And this is going to be the defining piece to this puzzle on this particular day and race that gets me to where I want to get. And when I look back at it, I'm going to say that's the spot that I overcame. So I think just knowing how much you invest into a race and, you know, I'm very grateful that I enjoy the process. I've gotten a situation now where when I go through a training block, I've got all these little like, carrots or incentives that I build into the program that I get fulfillment from even to the daily basis, where even if I do blow up at a race, I don't look back at it. It's like, wow, I just wasted the last four months of my life. (laughs) I think of it as like, you know, I didn't accomplish one of the, one of the many goals I was out here to do the value still there as a whole, but let's get back to trying to get all of that, that we were in there for. So it's not, it's a balancing act between, you know, putting yourself in a position to have that mindset of like failure, despite, being positives, but it's also, I think, a powerful tool that you can use in terms of keeping you focused and motivated. So when you look at it practically, you know, I say this, like at 40 miles into a hundred mile race, you may feel like you've got a huge mountain to get over with 60 miles to go and 40 miles in your legs. But in reality, if you look at it through the entire training, you're almost there. You're over 99% of the way there just by looking at it through a zooming out perspective versus zooming in. So I think sometimes with ultra running, the dark spots, they, 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 they mismanage your zoom in and zoom out. So like if I'm in a really bad place, say at mile 60 or mile 70 of a hundred mile race, I'm both zooming in on the pain and the discomfort in the moment. And then I'm projecting that out and thinking, this is my reality going forward. If I maintain when that's not actually the case, if I would zoom out from the whole approach, I'd realize there's these ebbs and flows throughout the whole training plan. There's these ebbs and flows throughout the whole race. Just because the activity you're doing got you to where you are doesn't mean it's going to actually continue that way, which is a really weird mind trip to kind of put yourself through when you think about it, because intuitively thinking you'd be like, well, if I keep doing this, it could only really get worse is how would it possibly get better? But (laughs) somehow it does. And you know that from experience and from talking to other people who've been through those, those trials in the past. And that's where I try to like remind myself. It's a lot of it is just relying on information that I've collected over the years through both training and racing. And I think one of the more like beneficial things I did in the last few years versus the first half of my career was actually looking at training as an opportunity to gather those things versus looking at at training as this physiological thing. And then the race day being the spot where you gain whatever mental experience you'll maybe need for future races. Now I look at everything for that, whether I'm doing short intervals, long intervals, long run, just an easy recovery run, uh, the whole, the whole package. Interesting. So, so when you did say the, the record for the 100 mile, it was like 11 hours, 19 minutes. 
worth of continued pacing. But like each mile, as you said, is somewhat different or maybe each five miles there's going to be fluctuations or different weather whatever it may be like say for instance when you broke that record initially was there any like not so much mental adjustments but like did you maybe because i think your average was like six minutes 48 per mile Mm -hmm. give or take around then that time did you like hit a, a mile that was like six minutes 59 and you were like, oh crap, I need to maybe make up for this for a few seconds because if it's a 5K run, it doesn't really matter. You can make up for it in the final sprint, but 100 mile, it's so vast that these small seconds make a huge difference at the end, especially when there's a record at stake. Did you have to make like loads of in-race or in-run adjustments throughout that 100 mile or was it quite smooth throughout it from a, a timing point of view? Yeah, I mean, on paper, it looked really smooth. It was my splits were about as clean as you're going to get. And I had a two minute negative split. So my second 50 miles was two minutes faster than my first 50. But that was definitely not the reality as it as you can imagine. I think like there's just no way for I would say in terms of how bad it can get, it was a pretty smooth race because things were I was managing things quite well that day. But really, what ended up kind of happening is I had a bit of a unique situation. So originally that year, my two goal races were going to be the San Diego 100 in June and then the Spartathlon, which I believe was end of September, early October or something like that. So this race at the Pettit Center just kind of like popped up on my radar a little bit late after I'd finalized my racing schedule for the year as an just about as good of an opportunity as you can find in terms of running like flat controllable 100 miles. So I decided to do it because I thought, well, I probably couldn't hurt to have a tune-up race for Spartathlon on the schedule anyway. And I I, I just in the back of my mind, I didn't think I necessarily had a great ramp up for it. I had San Diego 100 is a very much a trail mountain race. So I was coming off of that, turning back to flat runnable stuff. I only had about 10 weeks. So I didn't really build up the expectations in my mind early on that, okay, this is going to be the, the best opportunity I've ever had to break the world record. I've more or less looked at it as like, you know, maybe it's there, but really just a solid hundred mile race, something I can use to kind of catapult me towards Spartathlon would be the, what, what I would really be happy to walk away with from that experience. But as that buildup went, like my fitness on the flats just developed really, really well. I just had a really good, efficient, race specific buildup where I had some of my best long run development that I've ever had in any training block I've done so far. So going into the race in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I, based on prior development, I'm very much there. So I was at that point, I was like, well, let's just put it out there and see what happens. Uh, it didn't feel amazing to start the race. I didn't feel like I had like this, like pop in my legs where I was just like, really just holding back. I actually felt like I was working maybe a little bit harder than I normally would in the early miles that began to normalize. But by around mile 40, I started kind of slipping outside of the splits I was targeting. So the way I do these short loop courses, I usually go in with like, here's a fast split, meaning don't go past this, or you're going to find yourself in trouble down the road. And then I have a slow split, which is don't go slower this, or your primary goal is going to be, you know, as you're averaging out, if you keep doing those. So I try to regulate that by just spot checking. You can see your split every lap if you want to. I don't want to look at that every lap because that would just be like mentally fatiguing. (laughs) But I'll spot check it often enough just to make sure I'm in the right spot. And if I am, I just tune into effort for a while and then I spot check again down the road. 
So I noticed as I was approaching 40 miles, I was starting to slip out. I would spot check. I'd be like a second slow or two seconds slow. And at that point, the thought crossed my mind. I was like, well, maybe I need to just like settle in here, take what I get out of this race. Maybe I'll run something in like the high 11 hour range would still be a great, you know, for all at the time, it, it would have probably been the fastest hundred mile in of the year. So like I would have been sitting in a pretty good spot from a race result standpoint, get what I need for Spartathlon and likely be back to training a week later without too much uh, wear and tear. And I thought about that. I was like, well, it would be kind of a shame to give up at this point, given that like I did have a really good buildup. I'm in this unique situation. And it's just the thought crossed my mind of like, yeah, like who knows, maybe I'll never be in this position again. So I'm like, I'm just gonna give myself two more miles to just put myself back into that range. Like, you know, when you're, when you change the mindset from 60 miles to two miles, all of a sudden, like, it's not nearly as daunting to speed up a couple seconds per lap because heck had I wanted to there, I could have run like a couple of five thirty miles back to back. I would have been probably done after that, but (laughs) I could have done it. So like just getting back into range wasn't undoable. It was just a decision. So I made that decision. And then during that two miles, I started just kind of doing math. I was thinking, well, if I maintain this pace, where will I be at 50 miles? And if I maintain that pace, where will I be at a hundred K? And as I was kind of doing that, I started thinking, well, you know, my pace at those, even with like this effort would still put me in world record pace. So I should probably stay true. I shouldn't, you know, certainly don't give up when you're on pace. Right. Like, uh, so I kind of did that and I ended up hitting 50 miles faster than I expected when I did that quick math for the 50 miles in the hundred K, uh, cause I was probably just on the, the faster end of the splits at that point. And then I arrived at hundred K, I think nearly five minutes ahead of where I tr- projected myself to be, uh, at mile 40. So now I'm just gaining momentum and, 62 is a unique spot to be at for me because my I did a lot of three and three and a half hour long runs back to back on that buildup. And, you know, those ended up being somewhere in the neighborhood of like 27 to 32 miles, somewhere in there. So I was like a few miles away from hitting the spot where it was basically just one more long run. Yeah. So at that point, I remember thinking that I remember thinking at 100K, I'm like, all right, I've got the momentum of getting here faster than I anticipated. So I'm ahead of world record pace. I'm really close. I'm just an easy run away from being within my longest long run. So then my mind at that point went to let's just do this easy run, get to within your longest long run. And then I just ask yourself, can you do one more long run? And when I got to that point around 68, 70, I asked myself that and it was like surprisingly more optimistic about being able to do that than I had ever been at that point in a hundred mile race. So at that point, I just sort of recognized that I was in a unique situation relative to what I had been in the past with this sort of stuff. And I just kind of tried to stay patient still because, I mean, it's still 30 miles. You can do you can you can start going too soon and pay for it. You know, had I really ripped 70 to 80, then, you know, I've, I, I had the hindsight of that race in 2015 where I knew like if I was too aggressive, I could pay dearly for the last 20 miles. So I kept it under control. But then when I got to, you know, I got to 80 I started, started almost turning to that for motivation where it was like my mind started going to here I am nearly four years later, putting, I'm in the position I was there. I have this opportunity now for the first time since then to correct that mistake. And that just felt really powerful to me. So, uh, when I hit that spot, I was motivated, not fearful. Whereas in the past, I think thinking about that spot in the race, generated more fear and anxiety than it did excitement so uh that was a big like benchmark to hit and then from there i basically just started negative splitting in uh when i got to 87 or so i remember thinking i got a half marathon to go 
And I had done a couple half marathons and training that year just for fun and ran them around 70 minutes or so. So I'm just thinking to myself, like, man, I don't even have to get anywhere near a minute per mile. I could go over a minute per mile slower than this and I have the world record. So uh, I just kind of kept going. And then as the, the miles started ticking away, like people started kind of collecting into the into the facility and there was a pretty good base of people there cheering at that point. And one person around like, I think mile 97 said like, if you stay on pace, you'll run like 11, 1120 something or 1121. I remember at that point thinking like, I'm going under 1120. Like there's no yeah. doubt about it. Like every, every time I think at that point, anytime there was a perceived obstacle, it was like my mind went to, I'm so motivated to outdo that, that like, the, I, the only thing I think about in hindsight with this race was maybe I wish someone would have given me a couple more obstacles because who knows if I would have run a couple <laughs> minutes faster yet. Uh, so, cause I mean, I did run my fastest miles at the end of that race. I think I was pushing down into the low sixes for a couple of miles there near the end, uh, which is just a whole new experience for me in, from a racing standpoint. And, and, and yeah, so, I mean, that just kind of set up just the framework. I think I rely on more so in terms of how I like to think about like, not, not just preparing, but also like pacing and approaching like the stages of a hundred miles or something in that general time frame of 11 to 12 hours. Yeah. Having those, those checkpoints. So mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. one thing like listening through your break down nearly the bit by bit of that hundred mile effort, how, well, like this might sound incredibly stupid considering we have to do it or we'll all die immediately, but like the breathing element of it, like did, did you have to get coached on how to manage your breathing when say you're in coast mode when you're like around that 650 mark does your breathing change when it goes to like a six minute mile like what type of breathing techniques or routine do you have when you're running for such a a long time and knowing how important it is to keep that element you know of the run consistent yeah it's a good question i don't typically think too much about breathing during races because my mindset sort of is just like get in oxygen as much as you possibly can whenever you can get it. And at that point, it's like I'm trying to breathe in through my nose and mouth as much as possible. Although I think like what I do find is helpful, though, is the reason I can do that on race day is because if you pay attention to that stuff in training and your day-to-day life, it becomes default becomes what you should do. So you just the way I look at that, anything you can learn through repetition and practice you give yourself a break from having to deal with it mentally on race day. So race day is just as much about managing the mental pressure and the mental stresses and the the fatigue you get from having to think about as many things over the course of the day. So the more stuff you can put on autopilot that you are doing right, but not having to invest any mental energy and the more mental energy you're going to have available to stay focused in those later stages when, yeah, you are tired. Yeah, you are sore. Uh, yeah, you do want to be done, but since you have that mental capacity to stay focused, you can maintain and just deal with it. So things like breathing and things like that, you know, I'm, I'm pretty aware with breath work in day to day life in terms of just like, if I'm say nasal breathing, like breathing in my nose and out my mouth, that's a pretty good cue to where like my aerobic threshold would likely get crossed. So like if I'm running and I'm just, let's say I just went outside and I started walking and then I would just gradually speed up every few seconds, if I was breathing in my nose and out my mouth, once that starts becoming unsustainable, it's likely because I'm close to or have crossed over my aerobic threshold because then you get to a point where 
you know, aerobic running is an oxygen based activity. It's oxygen demanding. And the faster you go, the more oxygen you're going to require within that aerobic spectrum. So you cross aerobic threshold. Now the oxygen required is usually going to increase what you're able to take in through your nose. So then you start also breathing in through your mouth. So there are cues that I think can be important in terms of like, just recognizing like, where am I on a, from an intensity spectrum by perceived effort and by some of these, like these breathing cues as to like, am I pushing too hard or is this too, is this not, is this too, too, it's too slow. Like I'm not giving it enough right now when I'm leaving time on the table and things like that. But on race day, it tends to get much more intuitive where, uh, I'm more or less just counting on my body to kind of do the right thing based on what I trained it to do, uh, in all the weeks and months leading into it. Nice. And an, a huge part of training in any shape or size or background is the diet and I'm sure your diet when you were, say, 20 to up until this point, it's changed. Uh, like most people's, it has its good days and bad days and good years and bad years. But you operate at the moment and you're a big advocate of the low-carb, high-fat type of diet. And not so much like how it works for you, because I- I've heard you speak in detail about how it works for you, but like putting what works well for you like scientifically speaking what are some of the benefits of that like is it good for you know lack of inflammation is it good for x and y like what what are the the proven benefits of a a diet similar to that yeah i mean i think what we see with the research we do have is like you there's always trade-offs with these things so i think it becomes a question for the individual like and their lifestyle is the get the benefits from me making this switch going to outweigh whatever trade-offs i'm losing from it from an alternative approach uh and i think that's very much true with this and i think i have a unique situation in that my primary training and racing is targeting 100 mile races which tend to be things that are you know, at or around my aerobic threshold, you know, it's low intensity relative what I'd have to do if I were to race a marathon. If you look at like the best marathoners in the world, they're so finely tuned that they're taking their lactate threshold, which the average runner is going to maybe be able to sustain for about 60 minutes. These guys are doing it for nearly two hours. Like they are about at 94% roughly their lactate threshold for the better part of that two hour marathon. So they very much put themselves in a position where like, energy demands on race day are going to be very different than mine. So step one, I think, is looking at what are the opportunity costs or the trade-offs for me at what I'm doing versus what someone else is doing at what they're doing, and it's going to be different. For me, it made sense because ultra running is something where fueling becomes a much bigger variable than it is in other events. Like you typically need to fuel during a marathon. Most people are going to find their best race with some sort of fueling during a marathon, but the amount of it you have to do is very small. So like you don't have a whole lot of like issues digestively, typically from the top tier athletes in marathons because they only have to figure out how to manage a few gels or you know a few hundred calories over the course of a race whereas someone like running an ultra marathon may have to do that every hour and that it just invents gastrointestinal issues so if you just look at the data for ultra marathons you're looking at a scenario where you know roughly half i think it's six out of ten people at these single a ultra marathons report some form of gastrointestinal issue so 
that is uh, that gets broken down further yet into like where on the spectrum of gastrointestinal issues do you lie? Because that will make a difference. Like a mild stomach ache, you can probably push through without too much detriment. But you know, severe upper or lower GI tract stuff where you're losing your nutrition and stopping every you know twenty minutes to use the bathroom or puking and things like that. That's going to certainly slow you down. Yeah. So that's an extreme version of it. And you know, you, so you get like a spectrum of that with about half the runners. Three out of ten tend to be a little more towards the extreme end. So about half of the half do experience like I would, what I would call like race result, meaningfully bad digestive issues. And to me, what that tells me is like, either you have to be able to manage the nutrition required to run that optimally, or you have to find a way to, to, uh, not need it. And, you know, there's different routes. I mean, at the opposite end of the spectrum of me as a movement right now, that's actually gaining momentum and really mind provoking, which is just like this training your gut theory where you really just bombard your, essentially bombard your digestive tract with all sorts of different like sports projects, energy drinks, and essentially sugar, uh, during your kind of peak training. And then on race day, you're pushing these massive fueling loads of upwards to hundred plus grams per hour, you know, single day ultra marathon suggests that you will require 50 to 70 grams per hour. So I think you're you're dancing just as much on the fringe of science when you're trying to jam a hundred grams of anything down in an ultra marathon as I am trying to push it lower. But, you know, I'm not going to criticize them for that uh, because I think it's cool when people explore the limits and try to find out different ways that who knows, maybe it'll show to be some new pathway that produces faster race results down the road. Uh, But for me specifically, I think like when I start pushing up into those like 50, 60, 70 gram ranges over the course of a hundred miles or a full day, I just know I'm risking digestive issue and I don't want to risk that. So what I do is I lower the carbohydrate intake from my day-to-day life. I don't go strict ketogenic typically. Sometimes in the off season, I'll go that low, but I'm lowering my carbohydrate significantly compared to like someone who's on a moderate to high carbohydrate diet, who's maybe eating 60, 70% of their diet from carbohydrate, where for me, I might peak out at around 30%. So, you know, what I do by doing that is I increase my fat oxidation rates across the intensity spectrum. So at any pace I'm doing, and we're learning more about this now, because in the past, I used to think there was a point where now all of a sudden, you know, you're, it doesn't matter how fat adapted you are, you're burning all. And I think there is a point where that is, but what we're recognizing now is you can probably push that further into the intensity spectrum. But some of that's, independent of race day because 100 miles like i said i'm at a my interest area is aerobic threshold so i mean i can go into the lab and get that tested so i can find out how many carbs versus fats am i metabolizing uh at a certain intensity per hour given my diet so like when i'm following my my typical low carbohydrate approach I'm looking at 80 to 90% of my race intensity coming from fat, which means I just have to account for 10 to 20% of that. So if you just look at my race at the Pettit Center, where I average about nine miles per hour, you're, I'm looking at 800 to 1,000 calories per hour for that day. So if I need, if I'm doing 80, 90% of that from fat and need 10 to 20% of that from carbohydrate, I'm looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of you know 10 to 20% of that eight to 1,000 calories. So for me, I also know, when I push up to about 40 grams per hour, I don't have a whole lot of risk. Like I can usually do that pretty consistently without having to ever think about even a mild digestive situation. So it's almost like a a piece to the 
what a lot of people normalize of during a race is at some point I'm going to have to deal with even maybe some minor digestive issues. I'm not even really thinking about that going into a race. If I know I can keep my fueling around 40 grams, uh, which is just a great mental relief, logistic relief for me. Uh, I can set that program up pretty easily and do about half of that from a sports product and half of that from a solid food option if I want. Or when I'm down to 40 grams per hour, then I can usually sometimes go all liquid calories without too much issue. So like, you know, a lot of times on a race day, I'm just trying to get in uh, a packet of uh, S Fuels Race Plus per hour and then, you know, nibble on some solid food uh, maybe pop a hard candy in or something like that, or take a, like a sip of like a, of like a soda or something at an aid station to get me around, you know, 40 grams per hour. And, you know, I've got the, the lab data to support that that's going to be enough to defend my, my, uh, carbohydrate side of the energy body fat. Um, you know, the leanest hat, you pick the leanest athlete on the planet and they're going to have enough body fat to get through a race. So, you know, carbohydrates, the one you need to defend on race day. That's the one where we have a limited supply for any given day. Uh, our fat reserves, even at our leanest are, will absolutely like, like dwarf the, um, the carbohydrate stores we can acquire. So on race day, I'm not super concerned with fat in terms of making sure I'm eating it because eating it as a fuel that I'm going to really meaningfully need that day of, because I'd much rather bypass digestion altogether and just burn body fat and then replace it after the race if I can help it. So I will get some fat in during the day, just from some of the solid foods and some of the small amounts that are in that race plus product, uh, which may help a little bit with digestion, but in terms of using it as a fuel source on day of, I'm not thinking of it that way, uh, even though it, it, it probably does get metabolized and used, but, uh, that's not the concern of mine is I guess what I should say that I'm going to get to mile 90 and be like compromised from a fat standpoint. And that's, what's going to be the limiting factor on race day. And yeah, I mean, that's the way I look at it for myself. And then when I work with my coaching clients, I get like a whole range of different people who some who can just eat the house down during the race without any issues. And in that case, it's sound like, well, let's just find a way of eating in your day-to-day life that is that gets us to the goals you want uh, and makes it like sustainable for you because I'm not really worried about you being able to hit 50 to 70 grams versus, you know, a client more like myself where we've... You, you know, I've worked with people in the past where they've actually tried to train their gut. They've tried all these different ways to try to get themselves to be able to do 50 to 70 grams. And it's just like, they're just banging their head against the wall. So at that point, I think like if they have any relative interest in reprogramming a little bit of their dietary approach to be in the lower carb category versus the higher moderate carb category, we can find some, some relief for them on race day. And, you know, that's kind of the fun part about it too, is kind of looking at everyone as an individual and trying to figure out what's your best path forward versus mine versus sort of just shoehorning whatever else you're doing or what you see everyone else doing at them when they've already tried that and hadn't had the success they were looking for. And just even on that last point there, because for those of the listeners that don't know, like, and you've, you've said it many times, even on the podcast today, that like coaching is also a, a big element of your life as well. But like, how does one differentiate what works for them so say in your case like a certain strategy a certain diet a certain training method will work really well for you and then you get someone who might look similar to you can maybe do a similar mile but probably not do a similar mile split but like you know what i mean like they're good athletically good how do you differentiate what works for you and what will work for that person like is there certain things you like a a checklist you have to go through or is Mm -hmm. it merely a trial and error process 
Yeah, I think this is uh, this is what I think you. I don't. I don't. I wouldn't say I follow a approach that's all that different from say what a person would do if they were working someone with nutrition in general. Which you know, with nutrition, nutrition is unique in the sense that it's not a precise measurement the way other sciences can be. It tends to be a little bit more of a blunt tool that we need to use to assess these things. So we get these population averages. And we base our recommendations off of those because those are going to be the best starting point for the population at large. And then the people who it doesn't work for, they kind of have to find a different route. But if you start that way, you're probably going to catch the most people. So if you look at it the same way with ultra marathoning, the position paper with the limited research we have suggests that a for a single day ultra marathon, I mentioned the 50 to 70 grams that they would suggest that you take in per hour. They also recommend about a moderate carbohydrate diet as kind of being your day-to-day stuff. So I find that to be pretty convenient actually, because the reality is most people are eating a moderate carbohydrate diet. Like if we just went and grabbed random people off the street and asked them what their diet was and we actually, well, we wouldn't even have to ask. Let's just say we had the ability to actually see exactly what they're eating to the gram most of them are going to come out to some form of a moderate carbohydrate diet. So for me as a coach, a lot of times I'm like, okay, well, we have baseline data. We know how you're performing on a moderate carbohydrate diet. And then the next step becomes, what are you actually doing during the race to support that moderate carbohydrate diet? So if they come to me and they're like, I'm hitting 60 grams per hour like clockwork, I'm nibbling and sipping like the recommendations say, I'm doing a mix between sports products and solid foods, Uh, I've tried a variety of different stuff, it just doesn't work. That person I'm much more likely to say, all right, we've tried a lot of stuff, Um, you're not really, there's not gaps in your approach where, yeah, this is what you're supposed to do to get the result you're looking for, but you're actually doing something different. That person I'm gonna say, okay, well, you are you well usually they're coming to me because they they want me to help them because they've already come to the conclusion at that point that they need a different approach but uh if if they haven't that's when i would maybe mention that there is another option where you can just improve your fat oxidation rates and minimize how much you need to take in during the race and then perhaps that'll get you to the point where now you can consume the uh, enough to defend your your muscle glycogen and liver glycogen without having to uh you know try to hit that 50 to 70 gram mark on a regular basis uh you know and sometimes it's the personality too i also have given that i'm vocal about what i do or open about what i do i do get a lot more people in endurance sport following a lower carbohydrate diet already than say the average coach likely does because if someone's like let's say someone's been doing like a strict ketogenic diet for two years they decide they want to hire an endurance coach they hop online and they're looking for like you know who's an endurance coach that is familiar with a low carbohydrate diet they're going to probably find me just as quickly as anybody else. So I do probably have more of those type of people coming to me than say the average coach would. Uh, So then I do have a lot more situations where I'm having that person come in. In that case, I actually end up just as often probably someone on a very strict ketogenic diet, say like 20, 30 grams per day. And we're looking at how can we actually like increase your carbohydrate diet at least seasonally so that we're not like chronically in a strict ketogenic state, 
but we're using carbohydrates as a tool within a low carbohydrate framework. And I usually find that to be the best approach for people who are interested or find they do well on low carbohydrate diet. I have some clients that stay more strict and sometimes it's for reasons outside of the race itself. So I'm trying to be mindful of what their purpose is for the first place because I don't want to create another problem trying to find a solution for something that's less important to them uh, or potentially not even going to result in something that's going to be beneficial for them on either end of those. So, you know, a lot of times it's like first, I think regardless of who it is, it's looking at what they're currently doing, uh, finding out how successful that actually is, and then looking to make the changes based on what they're doing versus throwing everything off and starting over. Because anytime you throw everything out and start over, you limit your opportunity to find, I think, like where some of the positives were and what they were doing. They were maybe getting masked by a few of the deficits or simply like send or, or, or not having the, the framework of what they had been doing most of their life to reflect upon and really stress test before you actually make a really big change. So if I had described that briefly, I would say like, what are the smaller potentially meaningful changes that we could start with to test first before we do like this massive overhaul and then wish we had tried a few different things before we did that and, you know, find yourself kind of back at square one more often than not. Okay. And just one of the last things I want to ask, because there is a few Strava warriors that I know that are <laughs> prepping for marathons over the next couple of months. Like what, what are, without sounding too low level about it, but like what are some of the biggest mistakes people make? Like most people, and you've spoken about this, most people can just do a marathon. Like if I go mm-hmm. out today, I could probably get through a marathon, but getting it to the best of my ability is very unlikely. So whether it's to do with the preparation, diet, in-race adjustments, as we touched on earlier, like what do you think just based on averages of what you see and what you hear, what mm-hmm. are some of the key mistakes people make when they're doing their big marathon? Yeah, I would say mismanagement of targeting the right intensities at the right time. And sometimes it's not intentional. Sometimes they are intending to target the right intensities at the right time, but they're just not actually there. So like, I look at endurance sport, if I want to like just normalize some things where it doesn't matter whether they're training for a 3K or 100 miles, I look at it as like, I think all the typical like intensities that we would put into a plan are on the table. And it's just an order of operations of when to do them. And then it's also about assessing where the person has and where their strengths and weaknesses are, where their developments and adaptations are currently versus not. So like if I have someone who has like very, very, if they're like really strong at their aerobic threshold, they've been stressing that I might not need or want to even be stressing that to a high degree because we've already gotten all the way there with them. So the opportunity cost of continuing that process versus implementing some other stressor that's going to move the needle for them while we maintain the development at a lower frequency of that, uh, their strength is going to be different than say someone who comes in with like a very weak aerobic threshold and we kind of need to move that up before we start stacking speed work on top of it in order to like really put them in a good place to race. So everyone's going to be unique to that degree. But then really, I think if I want to really answer your question, like more directly is like, I think step one is really understanding the intensities and then what their purpose is. So like, I like to really simplify it at first, and then you can get way more creative from here. But I like to look at just like, here's your easy category. I like to break that into two. 
there's really easy, like a recovery run, which is going to be like super chill. You could do it forever. You could carry full conversation, no problem. You could maybe even sing during it. You're really just recovering doing that activity. Then you have the higher end of easy, which is like what a lot of people would call like a zone two, where it's up to your aerobic threshold, but maybe a little bit lower. So maybe like 10 beats below up to your aerobic threshold, somewhere roughly around there. Or I like to put it somewhere around maybe 70, 80% of someone's max heart rate. Uh, if they have their lactate threshold heart rate, it'd be about 20, 30 beats per minute below that. And that's going to be kind of like their base development zone. Then uh, I really like an intensity where you can sustain for about 60 minutes on race day. And you know that's going to be something you can do a time trial for. You can use prior race results if they've done some racing relatively recently and then use that for like their long interval development. And then I have short interval intensity, which is basically pinned to their VO2 max. I like to do those for roughly in the two to four minute range, usually on a one-to-one work to rest ratio in the interval sections. And that's going to be kind of their higher end aerobic training, short interval stuff. Uh, And then that's kind of the key ones that are going to be, I think, more or less universal for whatever you're training for, whether it's a hundred miles or, you know, something a little bit shorter and faster. And then from there, you can just add to it. If you have something like a marathon, which oftentimes falls between something like your aerobic threshold and your lactate threshold, you may need to add another intensity in there. So you're actually practicing race day intensity. So you want to also be mindful of what's the intensity I'm going to race on. I'm going to do on race day and whatever that intensity is, you're going to add that to that spectrum of different things you're practicing. But what you're going to want to think about it is think about order of operations in the sense of most or least specific things and weaknesses early in your training. And then as you move through, you start moving more towards more specific stuff. So race intensity is going to be your your kind of guide for that or your North Star, so to speak. And, you know, that's where it gets interesting. So if I'm doing like 100 miles, then I might be coming all the way back to base building aerobic threshold stuff around the end as I'm developing long run because it's just race intensity versus if I were to run a 5K, I might be doing like short intervals like near the end because those tend to be a lot more specific to like, say, my 5K pace. Okay. Well, Strava boys and girls, take note. Uh, that would be very <laughs> useful for their notepads. And yeah. then just last point from me or last question as well, and it is quite significant as I found out on my 100-kilometer waddle when I was wearing a, what were they, Pharrell Williams Yeezys as opposed to the <laughs> shoes I spent 180 euros on that I thought would work. I had to take them off after 10K. How important or how does one go about finding the right shoe? Because if you're going to be several hours, or in your case, over 10 hours on on the floor with the same shoes, ideally speaking, like how important are they? And like, what are the key things people need to worry about? Yeah. Yeah. So I would say like this question's gotten maybe a little more complicated now because of the advent of super shoes where you definitely have a tool now that actually employs a relatively large performance advantage relative to what footwear would have done in the past. If we move aside from that, because that's very much, I would say, a race day question and a question of how do I implement that enough in training so that I'm not throwing myself into something totally unfamiliar on race day. But generally speaking, I think like the lower profile, more firm of a shoe you pick, the more you're likely to engage your lower leg muscles. So if I'm trying to develop my lower leg muscles I may favor a lower profile shoe or a firmer shoe, something doesn't have to be minimalist, but something that's just going to like put your foot in a position where it's more likely when that foot hits the ground for those lower leg muscles to tense up and really absorb some of that impact force. And that can help with things like form 
precision of where your foot strike is. It sometimes will motivate someone to pick up a little bit of a faster cadence because it's just a little less comfortable for them to be like kind of like slamming on the ground in a really weird way or a variety of different ways. Um, it can also, since you are tensing up those lower leg muscles, create some relief upper the further up the kinetic chain. So like your knees, your hips and things like that. So people who deal with issues there sometimes find that a little bit of a firmer, more low profile shoe puts them in a position that is relieving some of the impact forces from heading into those areas that are giving them trouble. The, the counter to that is if you're dealing with a lower leg issue or your feet and ankles and calves are really, really sore, that lower profile firm shoe is going to engage that sore, tired area. So you very much want to look at it the same way you would as a strength routine, where if you wake up in the morning and you had done, let's say, like squats and deadlifts and your legs are really sore, you probably don't want to go back and just hammer another heavy squat deadlift session that next day. You want to let your body recover maybe do some active recovery movement to facilitate that process, but you don't want to replicate the activity that puts you in the first place. So if someone puts on a firm low profile pair of shoes, goes out for a run next day, their lower legs are sore. They don't want to replicate that. They want to let that area get stronger through the adaptation that's going to occur during rest and then repeat until they get themselves in a situation. Now their feet and lower legs are really strong and can, can tolerate more. And then from there, I think, a shoe rotation is what works best where now you also have a pair of like relatively soft shoes where you can have, like, let's say you have an easy day of running and you feet, feet, ankles, calves are a little sore from speed work you did the day before you throw on that softer pair of shoes. That might be the spot. You're just trying to relieve those lower legs and you can tolerate a little bit of impact forces being elsewhere uh, for that easy run without too much worse for the wear. And you have that variety in your training. So you're sort of stressing the body a little bit differently each time to the point where now you kind of have a range of options available to you versus feeling like you're pigeonholed into any one. Um, at the end of the day, though, really, like you do want to find something that's comfortable for you and keeps you mechanically sound. So a lot of times if someone goes into like a specialty shoe store, the job of the shoe rep there is to find the shoe that's going to have you mechanically sound. But since there's hundreds of shoes on the wall, they're often going to be able to give you like three or four options within that. So then it becomes your responsibility as the user to identify which of those three to four options feels the most comfortable on your foot. So it's sort of a two-part phase. One is what shoe is going to put you in the, help you stay in the mechanical position that's going to be most advantageous for you staying healthy and injury-free. And then from there, of those options, which ones actually feel like, oh, this one fits like a glove versus with the other ones that are there? Because you're going to get some variety within that. When you look at the injury stuff with runners, user identified comfort oftentimes reduces the injury and the statistics. So assuming you have the right shoe design for your foot from there, you're identifying your, your ability to identify it as comfortable or not is going to actually improve your, your injury risk. Okay. Good stuff. So Pharrell Williams may have a lawsuit against me, uh, not <laughs> necessarily suggesting them as marathon type runners, but sure enough. <laughs> someone it'll work for. Yeah. Someone out there. You'll see um, someone in everything. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so Zach, that's that's more or less the the main interview and, and how I normally finish is just with a quick few quick fire questions and then sure. I can let you go about your day. And so yeah, just first one up is your favorite film of all time. My favorite what? Favorite film or movie? Oh movie. Oh, okay. Uh whew, that's a good question. Does it have to be a movie or can it be like a miniseries? Uh, yeah, it can be. It can be a TV show or yeah, a series. Because 
I, I would say what moved to the top recently is have you seen Last Dance, the documentary on the Chicago Bulls? There, yeah, um, that would uh, I would put pretty high up there if I can pick that. Yeah, no, during COVID here in Ireland, there was two things of discussion. One was the Last Dance, and then a couple of months later, the Tiger King came along. So, oh yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows those two TV shows. Two different so. feels, feels, but they definitely both have their their place. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And next one up is what is your personal best or your your quickest mile to date? Quickest mile? I actually have to go back to high school for this. So I ran a four thirty nine. I think is my fastest one. Wow. I struggled to get out of bed in that time, so that is that was quite <laughs> impressive. So any listeners who want to try that, go ahead. I certainly won't. But next one up is what is your go-to coffee order? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I'll get usually a medium roast uh, with heavy whipping cream, and that's usually about it. If it's summertime and it's hot, I'll have that on ice. Okay. What is the toughest race you've ever took part in? Toughest race um, that I finished? Or can it be? Uh, no, it can be. Oh, it- actually, I got one here. I did this 100K actually over in the Gobi Desert. And I think the difficulty was more due to just like the way I went about it and the perspective about it all. But it was a relatively flat 100K, but it was basically all on beach sand. So it took me like, I mean, I've, I had run like, 644 for 100k at the time and this was a relatively flat course so i'm thinking how much slower can it be it was way slower it took me like nine hours and i think i enjoyed maybe one of them (laughs) it was just like (laughs) just a total series of like two steps forward one step back and then you'd have these like sand dunes that didn't really show up in the course profile that you have to go over and then come bombing down and it was just like it, yeah, it was the most frustrating thing I've ever done from a running standpoint because you just could not get a rhythm. Or I couldn't anyway. I would imagine maybe someone who trains on that would eventually normalize it. But to me, it felt like I was like fish out of water. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> and second last one, I ask every all of my guests this one is, what is the worst? Cleaning the dishes, hoovering the entire house, or changing the bed sheets? <laughs> For whatever reason, I hate changing the bed sheets. Like I, that's the quickest one out of all of those. But if I have an unlimited amount of time and I have to pick the one I'm going to enjoy the least, it's going to be that one for whatever reason. Yeah, something about those four corners. I don't know. It's it's like <laughs> I've, I've mostly had males on recently. I'm going to have a female guest on in a few weeks, so there's definitely an art to it because whenever I try to do it, my housemates are the same. The struggle is real. Yeah. But whenever I've seen my mother or any girl I know, they literally can do it in ten seconds. It's it's simple art to them. So yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, it's one of the struggles we have to put up with. But sure, look. And <laughs> last question is: if you could ask yourself one question today that I haven't asked, what would it be? Um, it's a good question. I would say. Uh, that you haven't asked you've asked some good ones so i would say maybe like something something in the realm of just like diving in even deeper into the perspective of like sport as you age so like healthy development within sport i think would be an interesting question that you could dive pretty deep into okay is that like managing 
your kind of expectations and how you physically yeah expectations and even even variety like from like all the way down to like specialization at an early age to like variety at early age and specializing later in life i think that's an interesting topic okay okay well if i have you on again zach that'll be the first question we'll start with that yeah Yeah. (laughs) i won't even do an introduction i'll just scream that at you and yeah so listen zach thanks a million for coming on i do really really appreciate your time and before i let you go i'll obviously attach all your socials so anyone who wants to follow you on instagram or check out your website i'll leave all the links uh, below but like is there anything happening over the next few weeks or months that people who are interested in your work should look out for or anything you want to plug yeah, I think, uh, I mean, next week I'm actually doing some crewing and pacing out at the Western States 100 for my wife. So that'll be fun. Um, but yeah, other than that, I think, you know, everything I'm up to is usually centrally located on my website at zachbitter.com. There I got podcast links, uh, coaching services, uh, social media channels and things like that. If you want to hang out on Instagram with me at zachbitter is the one I'm probably the most uh, uh, most frequently using from the social channels. Okay, good stuff. Well, I'll link them. So anyone who's interested or even if anyone wants to get taught from yourself, I will leave that link there too. And hopefully you can maybe help some of those marathon times get a bit lower. And yeah, Yeah. listen, Zach, enjoy the rest of your day. I do appreciate your time. And yeah, good luck with whatever's coming next. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.